So have you ever experienced this where somebody sort of points something out about you and you didn't know that that was the case about you until someone pointed it out? And then you kind of like have this realization like, has this always been true my entire life? And what, does everyone notice this thing about me? Um, this kind of happened to me back in middle school. A little bit about me, if you can't tell by looking at me, I, I got kind of a big head, like right here. It's a little easier to tell if I turn this way. I got, it kind of goes back a little bit. Um, but I got kind of a big head. It's not really a big deal as an adult, but as a kid, I was kind of a scrawny kid, so a little kid with this size of head was kind of goofy looking. Um, but I didn't really notice that was the case until one day in middle school. We were sitting in class, we were sitting in science class, and we were learning about this bird. And I've, I've tried to find what this bird is. I have no idea. I can't find now. But it was this bird that when it's young, its head was so disproportionately large compared to its body that at times it would have trouble lifting it off the ground. And there were even times where it would walk and it would drag its head on the ground because it was so heavy. And so we're learning about this bird, and the kid sitting next to me just leans over and just real quietly whispers, taps me on the shoulder, and goes, hey, that's you. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I just had this, like, dawning of, like, do I have a big head? Like, it's just, like, sunk in. And, I, like, the worst part about it was he didn't make, like, this big joke and, like, get the whole class attention. He just, like, whispered and, like, leaned over and whispered, almost as if he was just trying to, like, inform me of a fact. Just, <laughs> that's you. <laughs> so... Went on my life thinking of myself as a kid with a big head. And then I grew up, and I'm an adult, and it's not really that big a deal. And then as soon as it became not that big a deal, God decided it would be funny if I instead went bald. And so, which you might not be able to tell if the lights are reflecting and blinding you. I'm sorry, but so now I'm the dude with the big bald head. But that's just, that's just who I am, and it's all right. But I tell you that story because today we're asking this question. We're going to be looking at this question and asking, what defines you? What defines you? How do you define yourself, or how do you perceive yourself, so to speak. Um, or another way to look at it is if you're introducing yourself to somebody, what's kind of your go-to? What do you think of when you're talking about yourself? Do you think of things like your, your marital status? I think of myself as a husband or a wife or a parent, a mother, a father. Or do you go to things like accomplishments, like this is where I'm a student or this is where I'm an alum or this is what I do for a living is kind of the go-to, right? What I, uh, was it what I do is who I am. Is that kind of your go-to of how to describe yourself? And so that's what we're going to be asking today. We're going to be asking, how do you define yourself, or what defines you? Well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at New City. Um, today we're going to be continuing our, look, continuing our look through the book of Esther. We're going to be in Esther chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up with me. And if you don't have one, there's a black one in one of the seatbacks in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that one home as our gift to you today. Um, but we're, we're in Esther chapter 5, and I'm going to give you a little, hopefully keep it as concise as possible, a little 60-second recap from chapter 1 up to the end of chapter 4, because the way this book works is it's, it's a narrative. So there's, not, there's no real insight to people's motivations or backstory. It's, it's pretty much just an account of things that happen. And so where we are up until this story is Esther is a woman. She's a Jew, and she's living in Persia, and she's keeping her Jewish identity hidden. So she's a Jew. Not many people know outside of her people, but she's living in Persia, keeping her identity hidden. And basically, long story short, she became queen through some pretty uh, sad and dark situations. Essentially, the queen before her was removed, her crown was removed from her and she was banished. And then the king sort of held this competition where he brought in all the young virgin girls or women and basically slept with them one after another until he picked his favorite. And that happened to be Esther. So she became queen, but when we talk about her being queen, it's not this, you know, wonderful thing. She became queen through some pretty sad circumstances. And then right before here, um, the king had promoted a man named Haman to be what, what would essentially be like his vice president, like his second in command. And he promoted this man named Haman, and he commanded everybody to bow to him. 
And everybody did, except for one man named Mordecai. And Mordecai, coincidentally, is Esther's cousin and sort of ended up being like her adoptive father. So Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, and this really makes him mad. And so Haman sort of devises this plan to, because Mordecai is Jewish, um, essentially develops this plan to exterminate all the Jews living in Persia. So he presents this, this uh, plan to the king, and the king, not knowing that Esther was a Jew, signs this decree. And so there's this plan in place that all the Jews are going to be killed. And so right before chapter 5, um, Mordecai is informing Esther of what's going on because she has no idea and telling, him, or telling her that this is what the plan is. And basically saying, like, please do something about this. Like, you're the only one, you're the queen. I know the, the king doesn't know you're a Jew, but he, he may listen to you, and it's really our only hope to, to change what's going on. So please go and talk to the king. And so right before chapter 5 starts, Esther essentially agrees, says that she will, but she, she asks for him and all the, all the Jews to spend three days fasting and praying, and she does the same. And so as we're entering into chapter 5, verse 1, it's coming right out of that three days of fasting and praying, which is where we'll pick up in uh, verse 1. And it says this, it says, On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. Now, now this verse, kind of the end of chapter 4 and going into this verse really shows how wise Esther is. Because when, when she gets this news, I, I think it'd be very easy for most of us just to have like a knee-jerk reaction of like, I got to do something and, and I got to rush and do something and maybe make the wrong decision and act on our will instead of God's will. But that's not what she does. She, she takes her time and she prays and fasts and she has other people doing it. But the, inter- the interesting thing is she does that for three days. And then after that, she does something about it. And that's our, that's our first point I want us to look at today is that, is that there's a point we need to pray, but in reality, what we need to do is we need to pray and then we need to obey. And that's what Esther is doing. She, she, she's not just acting on impulse. She's taking this time to, uh, to, to, to seek God and to ask what he would have her do. But she does that for a time period, and then it comes time where she needs to do something, and she does. See, how quickly do we, and, and myself included, when, when, we, when we hear some news or when something happens, we're just so quick to act on our impulse and just jump and have a reaction and act on our own will instead of God's. But on the flip side, have you ever heard this, and, and maybe you've said it before, I know I have, of, when, when it's come to make a decision, it's easy just to say, you know, we need to pray about it. We need to pray about it. We'll, we're going to pray about it. We'll get back to you. But, but we do that forever, and we pray forever, and then we don't end up making a decision. And, and I don't want to belittle that, because the point here is to pray. And I'm not trying to say that that's, that's a bad thing, obviously. We're just right in the middle of this 21 days of prayer and fasting, so obviously that's a good thing. But there's a time where we need to pray, but then there's a time where we need to do something. And we need to obey. And that's what Esther's doing. She took the time to pray and uh, really seek what God wanted her to do. But then when the time came, she, she obeyed, and she did. And, and if, we, if we kind of look at this real quick, we can really miss how hard it is for her to obey in this situation. You know, if we're looking at it from an outsider's perspective, it's really easy to think, well, she's, her obedience is her going and talking to her husband. Like, what's the big deal? But if we don't know the backstory, it seems like it's not really that big a deal but if, if we kind of see what's going on here, her obedience is an incredibly courageous and dangerous thing for her to do. You know, we, we can't really overlook the, the way that she was seen by the king. Right, right, right up until this point, it had been about 30 days since her and the king had even seen each other. So this isn't like a loving husband and wife relationship where she can just talk to him about whatever. They had gone about 30 days without seeing each other. And in that 30 days, she's over in the women's quarters and the king is spending night after night sleeping with different women. So this is not this loving relationship. And also, let's not forget what happened to the last queen when she 
showed some courage when the king tried to get her to parade herself naked in front of a bunch of drunk men. And she refused, and she was stripped of her crown and banished. So this is not an easy task for her to do. And so when she goes to the king, how this works is if when someone approaches the king uninvited, if he doesn't raise his scepter to them, then that person would be killed. So in chapter 4, at the end of it, Esther uses this phrase, she says, if I perish, I perish. And it's easy to read that, and that almost sounds like fiction. Like, that almost sounds like a superhero story of, like, someone saying, like, if I die, I die, but I'll, I'll do it for, for my country or for my people. But, but she's, she's literally saying, like, I, I might die. Like, if I do this, I, there's a good chance I'll show up and I'll be killed before I can even get the words out, and this will all be for nothing. But she knows that that's the only chance that they have, and so her obedience is not this simple thing of just obe- obeying and talking to her husband, but she's incredibly courageous and brave as she's obeying what God wants her to do. So we pick it up in verse 2. It says this. It says, As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended his gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of his scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. So this is, this, this is just another instance of how... Um, why she's being like she's she's entering his, his courtroom and or, or the courtyard and it, it would be so easy just to say what's going on. I mean, this is such like a dire situation. It'd be very easy for her to walk in and just be like, "Just so you know, I, I'm a Jew. You didn't know that, and you like li- literally just hired Hitler. Like that that's what's going on right now." But she doesn't. She she waits and she says, "No, we're going to talk about this tomorrow, where there won't be other people around. It'll just be me and the king and Haman and the three of us and." And that's it. So there won't be other distractions. There won't be, the king won't have to worry about other people's uh, reactions to, what, to what's going on. And so she invites them to his banquet for the following night. And we pick it up in verse 5. It says, The king said, Hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, Whatever you want will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. And Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request. So this is like the drum roll of like, she's going to tell them this is going to be awesome. Then she says, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I'll do what the king has asked. So it's like this exciting moment where like she's going to tell them, she's going to get revenge on Haman, this is going to be sweet. Then she's like, let's wait till tomorrow. And, and the thing about this book is, like I said, we don't have people's motivations. So we don't know... We're not told, like, why she waited till the next night. And so, I mean, it could be a number of reasons. This may have been her plan the entire time. Or in, in reality, she may have gotten nervous, and she may have said, you know, kind of gotten cold feet and said, let's push this off another night. But what we can see as we look throughout this book is we see God working in, like, every area of this book. Because what we find out, what we'll find out next week when we look at chapter 6, so a little bit of a spoiler alert, but that that night after this first banquet, the king... Long story short, finds out that Mordecai had essentially stopped an assassination attempt against him. And so he, in turn, honors Mordecai that night. And so if she had told the king what was going on, it may not have had as big of an impact on him as if she had waited till the next night and found out that the person that Haman had sort of devised this entire plan around was the same person that he just honored publicly. And so it's so interesting to me to see how God is kind of working in the background and working behind the scenes throughout this entire book where his name's not even mentioned once. If we look at verse 9, it says, That day Haman, left full of joy, left the banquet full of joy and in good spirits. 
But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise and tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. And I think this is, this is interesting. This is kind of where we shift the story from Esther over to Haman. And what, what had happened is he just experienced like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. He had this, he got to attend a banquet with just the king and queen and himself, and that, that, that just doesn't happen. Like, that, this isn't a common thing. And so he's leaving feeling great, and, and to top it off, he was invited back the next night to do the same thing. So he's feeling real good, and he's leaving, but then he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai doesn't tremble in fear at his presence, and all of a sudden, everything he just experienced is out of mind. Like, I don't, it doesn't matter any of the awesome things, any of the great things that just happened to me, but because this one person doesn't tremble at my presence, that's all I can focus on. And I think, we, and this is where we really start to see how arrogant Haman is. So he just had this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but despite all the great things that are happened, one man not trembling at his fear ruins it all. As we pick it up in verse 10, and we close out the chapter, it says, this is kind of uh, Haman's response of what he does. It says he con- Haman controlled himself, and he went home, and he sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored and promoted him in rank over the officials and royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at a banquet she prepared. And I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall, ask for the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it, then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. This advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. See, when, when we're talking about gallows here, it's, it, it's not kind of our sense of the word gallows. It's not like an old, an old Western where they tie a noose around your neck and the floor would drop out and the person would be hanged. This is really more in comparison to what we would think of as an impaling. So this is, this is they're not just saying you should have him killed. They're, they're basically telling him you should have him killed in, in probably the most brutal way that we could imagine. And, so, and they talk about um, hanging him on these gallows that are 75 feet tall. Just for reference, if you're wondering, 75 feet, if we look outside, our telephone poles we have today, a standard telephone pole, telephone pole is about 35 feet tall. So 75 feet, is, this isn't just we want to get revenge on this guy, we want to get him back for not honoring me. It's we want to make a spectacle of him. We want to show how powerful I am because this one person doesn't respect, doesn't give me the respect that I believe I deserve. And so I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to get too graphic here, but when, when we're talking about this impaling, this is a very slow and painful death. This isn't a quick, you know, we're going to have him killed. This is something that would be agonizing and would have been really a thing for everyone to see just what happens when they disrespect Haman. And, and what I want us to see here is not, the point of this, to me, the point of this ending of the story is not for us to look at it and say, man, Haman is evil. Like, what a jerk. I can't believe someone would be like that. There's evil in the world and he's part of it. I can't believe it. But the, the biggest thing I want us to see here is that if we're not careful, our idolatry can look just like Haman's. Our idolatry can be just like his. And I don't mean it to say that we'll have the same response as he did. Obviously, I'm not implying that any of us will orchestrate someone's death or, or try and uh, coordinate a, essentially a genocide. But if we aren't careful, we can idolize ourselves in the same way that he did. And we can let it consume our lives in the same way that Haman did. See, it's easy to think about how crazy it is that someone would act like this, but sometimes the main difference between how somebody acts in these stories and how we act nowadays is just the amount of power that they had. See, a lot of times our motivations 
Well, it may not seem extreme in our lives as it was in, in the story and it wasn't Haman's lives. A lot of times our motivation can be very similar. See, in the New Testament in 1 John, it says, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And now most of us, myself included, I don't think any of us would really come out and say, like, I hate, I legitimately hate this person. I don't think most people would say that. But I wonder how often our, our actions and the way we live show the exact opposite. You know, how often are we idolizing ourselves and demonizing everything that disagrees with what we believe? And we do this in a number of ways. We idolize things like our status. We idolize where we are in life. And someone that maybe hasn't, been, hasn't gotten to where we are, it's easy for us to look at them and say, well, you know, it's because of all these reasons and point out all their flaws and point out, you know, if I made it here, they should be able to make it here. It's easy for us to idolize our political stance, big time. Regardless of what side of the aisle you fall on, this is, this is one of the biggest things that we're, people are idolizing right now. And, and how often do we sit down with somebody who has a completely different belief system than we do and who we disagree with in every way? How often do we sit down and talk with someone like that and legitimately listen to what they have to say and respond in love instead of just the, the entire time they're talking, thinking about how we can refute their argument and how we can get back at them and how we can cut them down? See, how often do we have conversations like this in love and actually encouraging each other? Or do we walk away from conversations like this with, 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 as adults calling people names and cutting down someone for believing a little bit different than we do? See, we can, we can even idolize things like our church. And this might sound weird, but we can even idolize our faith. See, where God calls us to worship him, but not worship the idea of being a Christian. So what happens when somebody does something like leaves the church and goes somewhere else? What happens when somebody believes a little bit different than we do? Do we immediately assume the worst? Do we assume their motivations must be wrong? They must not, just, they must not be as educated as I am. They must just not know the truth. Or do we hope and, and pray and actively pray that they're growing closer to God? And do we do that in private, not just when other people are around? Are we act, actually hoping that people are making these decisions that are right for their relationship with God? See, regardless of what our idol is, if we aren't careful, our, our idolatry can be just like Haman's. And the thing about an idol is it rarely starts out as a bad thing. I mean, you want to be successful and provide for your family? Great. Like, that's good. You want, you're, if you're single and you want to be married, you want kids, those are all great things. But the problem is an idol is when we take a good thing and we put it in God's place. So, so my question today is, what's your idol? What is it? Everyone's got one. I do. What's your idol? What's the thing that you've taken, and, and if you're not careful, you can put in God's place? And if you don't know, it's easy to find out. You just follow your emotions. What gets you so overly joyed, joyful, and at the same time, what gets you so overly depressed? What, what are you so terrified of losing, uh, or, or who? Or who are you so terrified of losing? You know, what, whether it's going good or bad, your entire life and all your emotions are tied to this thing that if this one thing is going right or going poorly, it makes or breaks your entire day. Uh, for those of you who don't know our story, uh, my wife and I, we just recently adopted a little baby boy. His, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, his name's Theodore. He's awesome. He's four months old. Um, we got him from birth, so he's been with us since he was born. And, and just to give you a little insight to our kind of backstory, if you don't know much about us, um, long story short, my wife and I, we can't have kids. And so we've been foster parents for, for a while. We've had different kids in and out of our home. But the thing with, with foster care, especially the kind of the route that we went with it and the fact that we don't have other kids in our home, 
it was pretty much guaranteed that we would probably never have a baby. And that's, that's fine. Like, that's just a realization that we knew was the case. And it's just because we didn't have other kids in the home and the types of agency that we, was, that we were with and just the likelihood of us getting a baby place in our home permanently is just pretty much slim to none. So we just assumed we, it's probably just never in the cards for us to have a baby. Um, but then all that changed on August 25th of this past year where we got a call from a friend basically saying, long story short, I know someone who might want you to adopt their baby. And he's going to be born in three weeks. And our heads exploded. Like, <laughs> and it was chaos and great chaos, and it still is, and it's been insane. But all of a sudden, we went from this thing that I really thought was just never going to happen to being a reality. And if I'm being honest with you, if I'm not careful, my biggest idol in my life can be being a dad to that little boy. That's the easiest thing for me to put in place of God is this thing that I never thought would happen, but I always wanted. That's now happened. And it's so easy to, to tie my identity to being a dad. And that's what I want us to see here. It's that without God, our idolatry can become our identity. Our idolatry can become our identity. And that's the difference between Esther and Haman in this story. Is we're no longer questioning, like we were earlier in the book, questioning Esther's motivation. You know, earlier in the book, she was doing things. We're not really sure if she had the right motivation in mind. But now what we're seeing here is she takes this time to pray and fast and encourages others to do the same. And she's considering God's will. And we can see that she has found her identity in the Lord. And that's shown by, by, by her actions. But on the flip side, Haman, on the other hand, is finding his identity in, in his idolatry. He's finding his identity in himself, in his, in his pride, in his status. And when, when Mordecai isn't recognizing it the way that he wants it to be recognized, none of the good things that have happened to him even matter. See, Esther's found her identity in the Lord, but Haman's idolatry has become his identity. And the interesting thing is Esther has every excuse to find her identity in something else. She, if we look at her backstory, she was orphaned when she was young. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai, who, as we've seen, really wasn't the best father figure. She was taken at a young age, probably between about 15 and 20, and if we're being honest, essentially raped by the king. She was made queen, which sounds great, but she was made queen to a king who has regularly shown his disrespect and disregard for women. And, but none of this defined her. None of this defined her. She, at this point in the story, she's not acting as an orphan. She's not acting as a victim. She's not saying, I can't do all these things because look at where I am in life. I, I, I don't have this power that you're expecting me to have. But she's acting as if she's found her identity in the Lord. And she's getting her strength from him. And that's what I want us to see here. Your story might be just like Esther's. In fact, your story might be in the bad parts of Esther's story. Like you may not have come out of these terrible parts in your life yet. And you might be sitting here thinking like, that's great, but I, I can't even back up from what's going on. You know, maybe I'm, I'm, I don't want to go home today because of what's going on in my life. And the thing I want us to know is that the things that happen to you don't define you. Just like Esther, the things that happened to her didn't define her. It didn't, it didn't dictate the way that she lived. So maybe you're, maybe you're going through a divorce, or maybe you lost a, a spouse or a kid, or you're going through something that you can't even imagine coming out of right now. We see, because of Jesus, we can, we can be like Esther, and we can move past our past, and we can move into our identity in Christ. But on the flip side, maybe things are going great for you. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here, and you're, you're honestly thinking, like, I, I can't really identify with that. Things are good. You know, I'm, maybe I, I finally am in the relationship I wanted, or... I finally got this job I've been wanting in, my, in our financial outlook for our future of my family. is finally looking up for the first time ever. 
We see, if we aren't careful, we can let these things that happen to us define us, whether good or bad. We can be like Haman and let our situation define us, or we can be like Esther and let our relationship with God define us. See, because of what God did for us, we don't have to let our situation define us. Um, it, it's, 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 it's similar to the way a parent treats a child. And, and I want to show you a picture. You can put that picture up on the screen. <laughs> this is Theo. This has nothing to do with the message. I just wanted to show it to you. No, I'm just kidding. It, yeah, this, this is him sitting back in the production booth. He came to work with me one day. Um, <laughs> but before he came into the picture, before we had him, I probably was like most guys in a sense of, I'm not the most sentimental person in the world. Um, someone tells you a story about their kid, and it's like, that's cool. Like, I like kids. I'm a, I'm a kid person. But like, you, you don't, it's not your kid. Like, you don't get that jazzed about someone else's story, about you know, their kid taking their first steps or saying their first words. It's like, that's cool. But you kind of forget about it about 30 seconds later, right? <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how I was. And I, I never really thought that I would be like this cheesy, lame dad <laughs> until he came into the picture. <laughs> And now I will challenge all the dads in the room. I will outlame you any day of the week. <laughs> 90 to 95% of the words that come out of my mouth at home is baby talk. And I love it. And that, that's just the way it is. But I get so, I get so stoked about the, the little nothing things that he does. Like I'll be sitting at work and my wife will call me and she'll, be, and she'll tell me, she'll be like, guess what Theo did today? And I'm already out of my chair, like pacing back and forth. I'm like, what'd he do? What'd he do? What? And she's like, he went from his back to his side, and I'm like, what? Like, are you kidding me? And like, like, like that's like, and you didn't shove him? Like, he went down his own, and it like blows me away. And or like, I'll, I'll come home, and she'll be holding him, and she'll be like, guess what happened today? And I'm like, what? Like, what I miss? What happened? What happened? She's like, he laughed, and I'm like, Bomb! Like what? Like it, my head explodes. I'm like, he laughed. Like, like really laughed, not just like made a noise. And we're saying it's laughing. She's like, no, we laughed. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh, like when he has his first words, I will die. I'm like, I just made my peace with it. I will be dead. But, but why? Why do I respond like this? Like, why is that my reaction to the to the nothing that he does? Like, he's not a, he's not accomplishing anything. No, like he. He, he's made no impact on society. I mean, the dude makes, like, legitimately zero dollars. Like, he, he, in fact, he costs money. Like, he's, he's brought nothing into the house. And, like, so why do I get so excited about him doing essentially nothing? And it's because I don't, I don't view him based on the things that he does, but I view him based on who he is. And that's the way that God views us. And that's our, that's our main point that I want us to walk away with today. And that's this. It's that our identity isn't achieved but it's received. See, our identity isn't achieved, it's received. It's not based on anything we do. It's based on what God has done for us. See, regardless of how we define ourselves, God has given us a new identity in him, and all we have to do is receive it. So we say this a lot at New City Church. We say that because of Jesus, we have nothing nothing to prove and no one to impress. But the thing about that statement is that's only true with the because of Jesus portion. See, without Jesus... You have everything to prove, and you have everyone to impress. But because of Jesus, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have anyone, anything to prove and anyone to impress. See, because of Jesus, our identity doesn't have to be tied to our achievements. It doesn't have to be tied to our failures. Our identity isn't based on what someone else did to us, but it's based on what someone else did for us. 
See, God's not concerned with your past. He's concerned with you. And so I ask you again, what defines you? How do you define yourself? Are you like Haman and finding your identity and your worth and your, and your, uh, your life in something that will never satisfy? Are the smallest things derailing you because your worth is found in something that's temporary? Or are we like Esther? Are we finding our strength and finding our identity and finding our worth in the Lord where we can't earn it, where we can't do anything to deserve it, where we can only receive it because it's freely given to us? Let's pray together.